0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast that looks at new movies and cinemas and then takes you back through cinematic history to some other titles that you may not have heard of and are connected to our main film. And this week, the film is 1917, the First World War drama, currently in theaters and up for a crap load of awards. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the
0: Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca.
1: And as I said up top, we're going to look at 1917, you're going to be hearing a lot more about this uh, as award season unfolds. And also look at some other films concerning the First World War right after this.
0: All right, Stephen, back in the chairs again to discuss films for about an hour or so. Uh, we went to see 1917. Much, much adored. Lots of accolades for this film already. We're not even really in deep into awards season yet should be another month or so of of more awards uh, but uh, certainly already won a few and it uh, gave us the opportunity to go back and look at films about the first world war and i think this is the first time that we've really focused down on films from close to the beginning of film history we're talking about films shot in the 20s and 30s which was a real pleasure for me many of which i haven't seen or haven't seen in a very long time and uh yeah and it was fascinating to see how the filmmakers you know a decade after the end of the great war the first world war or world war one depending on your preferred nomencl- nomenclature nomenclature <laughs> uh, excuse me um you know treated this immense world-changing event uh i found it really interesting to watch these older films and of course compare them to the
1: more recent films about the same subject matter well i mean the first world war is interesting in that it was kind of the first major conflict where cinema kind of played a part uh on many levels first of all it was captured by film cameras or aspects of it were i mean there's not a ton of photography of the actual fighting um in a lot of cases, sometimes you see footage of of guys going over the top, soldiers uh, going into no man's land, and so on, and it's completely staged. There were a number of um, productions that you know are from the time of the first world war where they staged battle scenes and, and that kind of thing. And over time, some of that footage has been treated like documentary footage. Um, and uh, in a film that we we didn't actually watch for this podcast but we'll probably talk about it um they shall not grow old uh the jackson Jackson documentary about first world war uh soldiers and and you know basically that sort of the day-to-day life of the soldiers uh he doesn't have a ton of that footage to use because he's done the research and knows that so much of that is you know we're we're filmed on training grounds or, or we're you know in in recreated battlefields or whatever so um there's there's a there's a just uh, there's a tad bit of footage of actual fighting in there but it's not really what that film's about um you know uh, the, the D W Griffith made a first world war pick while the the war was still going on Chaplin made shoulder arms it's it's uh it's it's really an interesting uh, sort of confluence of of combat and cinema happening at the same time and and then it just had this uh ongoing effect uh that so many of the major studio productions that followed in its wake were meant to be (laughs) anti-war, you know, the, 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 the effects of the war were so devastating on the populace, uh, you know, certainly in Britain and in Europe and Canada and England, or sorry, and the United States, even though they sort of came into mop up at the end, as uh, any British uh, war aficionado will tell you. But, uh, you know, the, it was, it was so horrific and, and, you know, such a return to status quo after it didn't really solve anything or, or lead us into a bright new age or anything like that. And I think that was fairly deeply felt at, at all levels. And that's why we get these major studio anti-war films, which is not what happens after the Second World War. Yeah, that's you know, interesting, isn't it? You know, it's 30 like, years later. Uh,
0: I was listening to uh, one of my favorite podcasts, the Empire Film Podcast, and they were talking about how few, relative to World War II, how few uh, First World War films there are. and uh, And it's largely due to, well, their theory, and I think it's the right one, is that Uh, The Second World War had so many, it was, there were clearly the good guys and the bad guys. The Nazis were evil, were doing evil things. And so that makes it easier to storytell around that, whereas, and allow for heroes and heroic gestures, whereas the First World War, it was just, you know, slaughter and mayhem, and chaos, and uncertainty, and no one, and then, you know, misery. Uh, and, and a lot of these films really reflect that in a way, the senselessness of it all. And I think that's something that comes through in most of the films thematically, is that how
1: pointless this fighting was, and how it didn't accomplish anything. And, uh and to a certain degree, 1917 doesn't really get into that very much. It doesn't really get into the the, the politics of, of the war. It's, it's more about showing us this one kind of vignette from the battlefield, these, these two young men who are sent on a mission to deliver a message to a, a battalion that's been cut off, their, their communication lines are down, and they're about to go into a battle that is actually a, a German trap that's going to decimate the entire, uh, entire platoon. Um, and uh, so, and it's, that's it that's a pretty basic setup. Yeah, it's, the story is very simple. Uh, you know, there isn't uh, this, this isn't uh, Paths of Glory we're talking about. No. Even though there certainly owes a debt to Paths of Glory, and it's many, many scenes of the traveling camera making its way through the trenches. But, uh, but, but it it is, uh, it is an enjoyable film. It's, it's very well done. Uh, so, some fairly good performances all around. It's, it, there's some, Fun cameo, fun I guess. Cameos by some very well-known faces playing some of the officers that they encounter along the way, and uh, and just the whole. The, I mean, obviously, the technique of of trying to capture as much of it in long shots that are pieced together to basically dovetail and appear seamless is 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 pretty magical. I mean, you, you can sit there and you know look for the cloud of smoke that covers an edit if you want to, but um, eventually you just kind of get carried away by the whole thing. And yeah, it took me about half the film. To stop
0: looking yes. at the camera, looking at the where the camera was moving or figuring out how they were doing some shots. Because there are moments where the camera seems to go through what would be considered physical matter. But it's all the stagecraft allows for that kind of thing. Either that or some very uh, invisible computer graphics, which is, I think, a testament to the special effects. If you don't notice them, then that is, I think that is how good, that's how it should be used. Um, But, uh, yeah, I I, I really ad- admired Roger Deakins, of course, cinematographer here. He's one of the great filmmakers, uh, and uh, his his expertise, of course, is well-served. Sam Mendes, is, this is his first feature since the two Bond movies, Skyfall and Spectre, and it also is the first feature, I think, in his whole filmography where he's had a hand in as a writer. It's based on his grandfather's firsthand stories from the trenches, so you can feel there's a personal investment here. He brings that with all his considerable cinematic skills to bear. Uh, the question I think that is that stayed with me coming out of the cinema, as much as I enjoyed the process of watching the film, I was so engaged by it, um, is whether or not that single shot is a gimmick, whether it, it, it well. really whether whether it, it detracts from the storytelling or whether it serves it. Yeah, I, but, I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not necessarily asking you, Stephen. But what, no. I mean,
1: you can give me your opinion by all means it It is a gimmick, but I think it is an effective one uh The idea is to put you square into the action and i think by by not breaking up the shots uh you know with with editing and you know those traditional uh forms of of, of uh shaping a, a film cinematically it's i i think it does give you that you are there kind of thing uh it's, 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 I'm sure more than one person has referred to it as kind of the First World War, the ride. <laughs> yes. You, you know, you kind of feel like you're strapped into a chair, like you're on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at, at or, D- or Disney World or, or whatever. Or video game. I certainly heard, heard people talk
0: about that, uh, that it has the structure of a first person shooter.
1: Yeah, but I'm old and I like my Mr. Toad's Wild Ride <laughs> <laughs> analogy. Fair enough. I think I, I'm trying to think of the last time I actually played a first-person shooter. I think it was Doom uh, <laughs> on, on, on a PC or something Doom, like that. Doom
0: never gets old, man. It's still fun. That's
1: true. And then I tried to play Quake on a on a PlayStation. It gave me motion sickness, and that was kind of that was kind of the end of my first-person shooter uh, uh, run. But you know, it was fun while it lasted. Uh, but uh, so, but it does. Yeah, it does certainly have that kind of feel um, as you make your way through the different terrains and, and so on. And you know, I, I guess. Uh, what this film does, maybe that hasn't been done before, is it really does kind of put you, you know, into like a f- first-person objective view of what it was like to be going through the muck and the shell holes and the, you know, the corpses sticking out of the mud and that kind of stuff. You know, th- there are things that I'd only read about that I hadn't really seen portrayed in, in, in films about this period to, to this degree. And it, it's, you know, obviously, that Mendes wanted us to know what, you know, what these guys went through. I mean, I, Peter Jackson kind of wants to do the same thing with his, um, film with his documentary, but I, I think he didn't want to delve too far into the horrors of it so much as humanize these guys who sacrificed everything for this ultimately pointless war. Um, uh, Mendez focuses more on the, on the men and, and, uh, you know, kind of what they are up against, but doesn't really get too much into the wherefore, why, why they're there. The, um, and you know, I love that, that there are certainly tributes to First World War films of years gone by scattered throughout the film. There's little tributes here and there, which are kind of fun to pick up if you watched any number of these. Uh, which we did. Which we did. <laughs> um, uh, Paths of Glory probably being the most obvious one. Yeah, and, and yeah it, we
0: talked about Paths of Glory yeah, during we're... our Kubrick uh, episode, but it is, for me, maybe the, the great World War I film. That or, or All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930,
1: those are the, those are the two essential films. Well, I'd, I'd say Paths of Glory is probably a better film than All Quiet on the Western Front um, in so many ways. But uh, th- th- here, um, for example, there's a scene where they come out of the woods and there are all of a sudden all these cherry blossoms. And there's a discussion, there's actually a conversation about cherry blossoms while they're in the trenches in All Quiet on the Western Front uh, where one of the soldiers, I guess, is talking about the farm back home with the cherry trees right. and things like that. and And so that was clearly like, a, a deliberate nod to that film which you know was a best pi- best picture winner back in I think 1930 um so it's it's obviously one of the more memorable examples of, of that era being portrayed on film and uh you know I, I like that it, that was kind of a subtle nod it, you'd have to actually remember the film and that dialogue to actually get the the reference so you know, clearly he's done he's gone deep on his love for this era and and uh his fascination with it um But, uh, you know, it is just meant to portray kind of a snapshot of that period. But we do get scenes of battle and we do get the fear of in the hearts of soldiers, you know, waiting for that whistle to blow before they go over the top and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that is a staple of these films, for sure. The uh,
0: the trench warfare. And I think almost every single one of these films that we watched has a scene of young men climbing ladders to try to get out of uh, the trench with their bayonets affixed and then immediately falling back into the trench once they're shot by the machine guns of the enemy. And uh, usually it's the Allied forces or the British, the Brits or the Australians. But there are, of course, some examples, uh, for instance, All Quiet on the Western Front, where we see it from the Germans' perspective, which must have been quite a shocking change for audiences in 1930. Uh, But yeah, I mean, as far as 1917 goes, I would definitely recommend it. It is uh, sterling film and it is impressive, impressively put together. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it didn't really stay with me after the film was over. I really enjoyed my experience in the cinema, but uh, usually when I really love a film, it's because I'm thinking about it in the days following. There's those two experiences, one in the cinema and then one afterwards as you're kind of absorbing what you've seen and i didn't have much of that second part to this film once i was out i was sort of like okay well that was that was something and certainly many of these other feature films about the first world war i was very emotionally engaged by and i'm still thinking about now
1: yeah it's it's interesting i i think i had the same experience i i got some visceral reaction to it while i was watching it and but it, it it is kind of a collection of moments Um, you know, there's, there's no real arc if you want for, uh, for the film apart from the soldiers, you know, embarking on their duty, you know, that duty getting carried out and, and, uh, and hopefully some lives getting saved Um, that, uh, but yeah, it doesn't have that undercurrent, that we get from from something like All Quiet on the Western Front or or uh, Paths of Glory or even even the Big Parade, uh, the King Vidor silent film, which we'll probably talk about uh, coming right up, uh, which you know was was uh, you know was meant to be one of the first big anti war films uh, coming out of the silent era, um, you know following you know just within less than a decade of the end of the conflict, which is even hard- harder to comprehend now of being able to go back and restage that, but. Um, yeah, I I do wish uh, I you know you I already had some understanding of the conflict. I'm I'm I've been fascinated about the First World War for years. Um, you know, last year I went on a road trip and listened to all like nine hours of the Dan Carlin hardcore history First World War podcast, which I highly recommend. Uh, if you want to know everything there is to know about the First World War, uh, that might be the way to go to do it and and kind of bite-sized chunks uh you know everything from the the the, the lead-up to the war you know why these tensions erupted in such a horrific and terrifying way and 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 all the little weird little corners of of the war like up in the, the fight in the alps which you know i don't think has ever been portrayed <laughs> to any great degree and and uh you know something more about the the ottoman empire's part in the whole proceedings you know which we of course we see in gallipoli is probably the, the best example of that being portrayed to to a certain degree but um yeah, I I felt like you you won't come away from this with any greater understanding of the conflict itself uh or why you know why it happened what the greater implications of it were um but you will get an idea of what uh what human beings went through in this you know just this mashup of uh, the industrial revolution and basically finding new and unique ways to reduce human beings to piles of mush um <laughs> but uh but yeah it's unfortunate there wasn't a way to kind of get a little more depth into that film and uh, I I kind of wish they'd been able to uh, so that it would have lingered with me and of course it, it is up for a crap load of awards as I said <laughs> also eloquently at the top of the show but uh, you know and it, it looks to, to be a pretty major contender at the Academy Awards not that that's a be all and end all for what films are about but it I don't know it's not that it's calculated to be that kind of film but it ultimately becomes that kind of film yeah this is what does uh, does well at that time this is the kind
0: of stuff that the academy likes for better for worse these are the kind of films it's serious it's historic there are costumes and it has that technical aspect that, that will wow them so
1: Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new movies and then compares them to films from days gone by. Similar genres, similar stars, directors, what have you. And right now we're, we're into similar subject matter, and that is the First World War. We just uh, talked about 1917, directed by Sam Mendes. Uh, certainly a technical triumph. Uh, and a very compelling portrayal of what soldiers went through. Uh, But, of course, certainly not the first film to tackle that subject matter and maybe not the best film to tackle that subject matter. Um, And as I said uh, in the first segment, the the First World War was really kind of the first war where cinema was involved. I think there may have been some footage of the Boer War, perhaps, or some other conflicts. Uh, Famously, (laughs) there was uh, a film about the Spanish-American War where they actually recreated a battle with models and things and try to pass that off as documentary footage. So, you know, of course there's never, you know, whenever you say something is the first and then it it automatically never is really, but, but certainly, um, you know, film and, and the first world war that, that conflict, uh, came together pretty quickly. There were obviously there were film cameras on the scene, uh, at the time. There's lots of documentary footage from the war. There were, were films made during the war, uh, and, uh, you know, one film we probably won't talk about because you didn't see it, uh, Doughboys, is a comedy uh, with Buster Keaton. And Buster Keaton actually served uh, in the, in the uh, American, I think, infantry. And, uh, and, and then he made this comedy called Doughboys that is not one of his better films. He's paired with Ukulele Ike, uh, Cliff Edwards, who did the voice of Jiminy Cricket. And they were kind of like a team uh, in this comedy that is not great. But if you want to see a comedy about the First World War, that's... When did that come out? Uh, early 30s. It was okay. one of his MGM films right, right after the silent period. Ended. Gotcha. Um, but here we are. We're in the but, 20s. But we're, the, in the, we're, big, big we're in the parade. 20s. And uh, the, yeah, the, like I say, there was uh, Hearts of the East. I think was no, that's not it. There, there was. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of D.W. Griffith's first World War film, and I, I, I'm drawing a blank. But um, this is why you need notes, Stephen. I know. <laughs> this is why one I these, take notes. One of these days, I will have notes, <laughs> um, um, which was more or less propaganda, I guess. But. Um, you know, once soldiers started coming home and telling their tales, it was like all well, the Germans. You know, no one side seemed to be worse than the other. It's not like after the war everyone was talking about how bad the Germans were because uh, to to win this war you had to fight dirty on both sides. And and we see that come out in in some of the films uh, that we watched uh, in preparation for this show. Um, but uh, the the big parade by King Vidor, I think, is is kind of the big first big budget production to tackle this subject matter. In, in a major way, um, you know, and of course there's still lots of veterans of that war around at the time, uh, they had lots of, um, background on, um, you know, what it was like. So there was a certain level of realism to what gets portrayed, um, that seems to run through a lot of these films and, uh, from the, from the early days of, of, of the silence and, and, uh, and into the early talkies that also tackle the subject matter. Now, King Vidor, uh, years later, uh, decided that you know he wanted to make an anti-war film and i think at some point in the 70s cuz he lived to a ripe old age and he felt that he didn't make it anti-war enough that that uh, any film that uh isn't necessarily or completely anti-war is thereby pro-war <laughs> is is one of the theories about you know war pictures and the dilemma that they present um and uh, we do our, our hero does uh, at one point, point late in the film he he kind of loses it and runs out onto the battlefield and has kind of a big anti-war rant uh, after he's trying to, I think he's trying to retrieve the body of one of his buddies um, from no man's land and, and um, has a, has a bit of a breakdown, but uh, you know, we see the, we see the gung-ho, uh, uh, patriotism of the lads uh, as uh, the call to arms goes out and and we this is a formula we've seen in more than one one film yeah especially you know? these but early this, ones but That's, this is kind of where you know? yeah exactly but this is kind of where it, we first see it yeah
0: there is a formula here that having watched this and wings which this the big parade was 1925 wings 1927 and then hell's angels in 1930 you know we start back in the home front uh, the Big Parade is about Jim. He's a rich but idle young man who enlists in 1917 when the Americans declare war. At first, he doesn't want to go, but his buddies are all doing it. And then his girlfriend says she can't wait to see him in uniform. And then he gets caught up in patriotic fever at a parade. And finally, his father pressures him to do something with his no-account life. The film lines up every possible reason for someone who might be opposed to the war to change their mind. And that's what Jim does. in a it's it's remarkably light, especially in the first hour or so. It's got a kind of comedic tone where he he goes he gets friendly with two other soldiers who he never would have known otherwise. Slim, who's a former welder, and Bull, a bartender, and uh, they go to France, and that's where Jim falls in love with Melisande and. Uh, and then, and then there's, you know, we get cards like that evening, Jim detailed himself to some more skirt duty and, you know, that kind of ridiculousness. Well, uh, and it's all in the silent era. So, so, you know, it's, it's all, it's very cute. Um, but uh, then, then it becomes about the war and the battle scenes are actually pretty scary. They're, a soldier falls out of a tree onto his head in one scene. I was just like, how did they do that without that person getting really badly hurt? Um, you know, and then the there's a the disillusionment that comes when Jim you know has to go home and and uh his mother has a flashback to when he was a child, and Jim is very badly hurt and uh and that's pretty much the model is like idealistic young men go to war, they miss their girlfriends back home or they meet someone and then Uh, They have something to lose, and they lose it, and they come back changed. They'd come back men, uh, you know, and um, maybe changed forever. And some of that is—there's not much of it that feels very um, glorifying. It feels mostly disillusioning. And I did appreciate that about these films. Um, You know, I I think The Big Parade is clearly—you know, it's well done, and I I really enjoyed it. Uh, But— you know, they, these movies got more and more interesting as they went along. I think Wings has this incredible um, aerial footage uh, that's really something because it's more about the aviators. Um, and it stars Gary Cooper, who shows up briefly. And <laughs> I, I kept thinking about Brad Pitt and Thelma and Louise because he's barely in it. But as soon as you see him, you're like, yeah. that's Gary Cooper, and he's a star. Like, he looks <laughs> so good. Um, and, then, uh, and then Hell's Angels, which, of course, was Howard Hughes' massively expensive First World War Air Ace movie. Apparently was a high grocer, but uh, men died making it, um, and it's about brotherhood again. <laughs>
1: they spent a small fortune making it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and then you've got the women sort of on the periphery. Uh, I think Cl- uh, Clara Beau was probably my favorite from Wings. She's great in that that uh, ambulance uniform she wears when she joins up and becomes an ambulance driver is, is worth the price of admission. <laughs> the, an
1: incredible costume, the knee high boots and the cinched waist on her ambulance driver uniform. Cause <laughs> yeah. she wanted to show off her curves. Um, yeah. yeah. It's uh, yeah. Unfortunately the, the roles for women in these films is, is, is not the greatest. Uh, Renee Adore plays the, uh, the, French, uh, you know, the, the French, you know, the French girl in the, the village, uh, in the big parade. And of course we get after the first half hour leading up to the war, we get almost a solid hour of like hijinks around the French village. Um, you know, between John Gilbert and, and Renee he teaches her to chew gum, which apparently was improvised on the set. She had never chewed gum before. Um, but it it was, it's kind of like a universal thing, I guess, of soldiers, you know, giving young women chocolate bars and gum and Coca-Cola and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, she, they they're very charming together. Um, Gilbert and and, Adore. and then and the scene when he finally has to go off to battle, and she leaves him uh, alone in the the road as all the soldiers pull out is very very convincing. Um, I you know what I got to stop you there. Uh, I felt so over the top.
0: She's basically oh, hanging yeah, on well, the edge of the truck because, he's, his boot. because he he won't he won't she doesn't want him to go and she's being dragged along like, and, and, you know, and everyone's crying. But she loves him. And then yes, he, <laughs> he leaves her his boot and she's left there clutching, clutching his boot. And I'm just like, I think he's going to need that where he's going. <laughs> anyway, I found it. I found the melodrama. It was all, it was like almost ridiculous. Yeah, but
1: you haven't watched enough silent movies. <laughs> like I
0: have. Fair enough. Fair enough. This is actually, it's been an age since I've seen a silent she,
1: movie. She's, so. I, I thought she's very charming and, and they have nice chemistry together. And I, you know yeah that's that is a bit melodramatic but it you know she knows she's not going to see him again or you know or she thinks she's not going to see him again mm-hmm. I don't want to uh give you any inclinations about how this film ends but um but the, you know that's that's a recurring thing uh in the film you know but it was a real a very real thing that people faced you know because you you know you just see endless if you watch these films it's like you're, you're amazed anybody made it out alive you yeah know? And, it's true and, and uh the The body count seems to go up as time goes by, and they can show more people getting killed by raked by machine gun fire and, yeah. and so on. And but. when
0: you read about the actual body count, it's just the the price of of human lives it was so cheap back then. Like like you think about hundreds of thousands of of men dying over the course of a few days, and uh, in places like the the Somme, and uh, and you imagine that kind of thing happening today. Uh, and it just it just kind of like it just boggles the mind uh that 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 nations would would sacrifice for the for the you know patriotism and god and glory and all that kind of thing anyway yeah it's uh these are these are really movies worth worth seeing. I still stand by. I think Wings being my favorite. Uh, and Hell's Angels again. Hell's Angels and Wings both have amazing aerial footage. The given the restrictions of the age in terms of of technology. I mean, they must have shot. They must have had some of those planes still around, and they definitely swooped and dove and and flew them. But also the model work is exceptional.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Hell's Angels. Uh... You know, it started off as a silent film, but Hughes, the production was taking so long that by the time they were almost finished, sound came in, and Hughes decided that no one would want to see a, a silent film about the First World War at this point. So he, he just—they basically just started production again and made it a sound film. Um, but uh, you know, halfway through the movie, there's there's a scene where uh, a German Zeppelin is. Dropping bombs on uh, on London, and uh, of course the the night patrol goes into attack on this zeppelin, and it's an amazing sequence. It is. Yeah. um, It's first of all, it it, like I said, it's a sound picture, but they're still using some silent techniques at this point. It's still early enough in the game that some of the holdovers from the silent days. So there are title cards here and there. Um, They're tinting and toning the image, which means there are scenes where you know it's night and and it's colored purple. to, to present the the night scenes uh, or or dark blue, um, you know, which is something that happened a fair bit in the major silent uh features, but is a is a technique that would be dropped pretty soon into the uh the sound era. But it's it's kind of interesting to see it this, you know, still lingering on here. And it's used to great effect. And then they use the there's a stencil, uh, the Hans uh process that they use to portray flames when the Zeppelin is attacked and you know there are flames shooting out of it, and and so all of a sudden there's like a blast of color that you did not expect to see in a black and white film. Actually, Wings does it too. They uh-huh. use they use the same process to show, um, you know, the the blast from the machine guns on the on the and then the uh, the biplanes, and then when the biplanes go down in flames, you see actual colored flames coming out of them. Plus, uh, for that restoration, sound effects by Ben Burt, uh the you know the the great uh, sound uh, designer, um, famous I think I believe he worked with uh, with George Lucas. Um, right. But, yeah, I know his name. But sure. I guess he had such a fondness for that film that he wanted to be part of it, and you know, did the did added sound effects, which you wouldn't have gotten in an original screening. But with this glorious surround sound score happening and this beautiful restoration of the film, uh, it uh, the sound of the guns and the the airplane motors and stuff really do bring it to life in a way that uh, a lot of silent films don't really get to take advantage of. Um, uh, Hell's Angels uh, does have. Uh, the acting is a bit stilted, uh-huh. I think. If, yeah. If, if to a large degree. Uh, uh Jean Harlow is in this film, but it's still pretty early in her career, and she's not fully comfortable in front of the cameras in a way that she, she would become fairly soon afterwards if you see her in films like Red Dust and Red Headed Woman. And, and you know, unfortunately her career was very short, and this is like I say, it's an early, early role for her. And she's very charming, but she's playing this kind of very promiscuous uh, woman that uh, one of the pilots you know he's he's just devoted to her, but he doesn't really know the real, uh, real woman that he's he's dating, and and um. You but that his brother recognizes exactly. Him. Yeah, so yeah. so that's the conflict there. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, not a ton of charisma from either of the leads in Hell's Angels. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is much different in that regard. I find that the the stars of that film are a lot more engaging and I mean that was a best picture winner in nineteen thirty I think. Mm-hmm. Um but uh I think it was worthy of that honor. Uh you know it's it does go full out in showing the horrors of war and uh and had some great performances and and you know was was very much a, a film that was kind of ahead of its time for that time in terms of what it portrayed and uh and the quality of the acting and 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 so on. Um Lou Ayers, uh, who plays uh the main soldier in that yeah, film Paul is his name yep. yeah yeah he plays Paul the the you know the young german schoolboy who becomes a soldier and you know gets you know fairly embittered and and hollowed out by the whole process um you know it it's it's this gradual transition over the course of the film and he's very effective and of course after he, the film came out he became a pacifist he became a conscientious objector during the second world war and he took a lot of flack for it and his career took a bit of a hit for it but he did serve i think as a medic uh, and honourably during the Second World War, so you know he he did put his money where his mouth was, mm-hmm. as it were. But uh, he stood he stood by his principles at yeah. the same uh, same rate. This
0: film I really loved. Like I really enjoyed the other three leading up to All Quiet in the Western Front, but their formula aspect of the storytelling kind of came through. Um, I did enjoy... Something else I enjoyed about all these movies is how pre-code they were so um, risque in many ways. The storytelling was, was... There was lots of innuendo and and sometimes uh, the kind of language that you just wouldn't necessarily expect from a film made in the 20s and 30s. But uh, All Quiet in the Western Front was like a head and shoulders better in a way, just in terms of it, it eschewed the kind of formula. It was really... You know, you you join these these young men in the classroom as they are being whipped into a frenzy by their their teacher, and uh, of course it's in Germany, so it's the German perspective. and And you mentioned Luhrs as the lead, but we don't really know he's the lead for the first act. No, so true. it's like it's all these guys who are from this class, and they're all just experiencing what it's like to be trained and then go to the front and fight for the first time and what it's all about, and and uh, and. You know, and there's a sort of group kind of thing going on. But uh, as they start getting killed, that's when we discover who the real lead is. And I think the film does that very well. It it allows us to get fond of these people in a group, and then slowly but surely we start to really connect with this one guy. Uh, and there's an amazing sequences in the film like – when uh, the one soldier loses his leg, but he's the one who had the best boots. So when he <laughs> dies, one of his buddies gets a fancy boots until well, that, that guy such dies. A great sequence. And then the boots go on to yet another soldier. And it's just such a great way of indicating the, um, you know, how how little life meant and how people just died. And this is how it went. This was life at the front. And Paul does wind up Change the, the experience changes him. He goes home. He goes and speaks to his old teacher, who's again whipping another class of kids into a froth. That they're even younger this time, and he says, "He can't make." Uh, he says, "Our bodies are earth, and our thoughts are clay." and the message of the senselessness of it all really kind of grabbed me. Even 90 years later, I, f- the intensity of this film really stays with me and it's, it's, it's something special. I was really glad to see it again.
1: Yeah. I, I like what you said about Ayers. You know, you don't really know he's necessarily because the lead as per se, because I mean, you would have gone to the theater cause he's on the poster, but, but, uh, but all the friends are kind of equal as they all, but as they start to kind of get picked off one by one and it's just pure chance. It's not cause one's a better soldier than the other one. Although, um, uh, in the remake, uh, Ernest Borgnine does say something about how a lot of these guys get killed right off the bat because they they do something dumb. Like one guy goes down in a shell hole to get his he drops his helmet, but of course the gas that they would fire would like settle into the shell holes, and of course he immediately just succumbs to the gas because he went. That after would his you helmet. know what that would have been me. I totally would have forgot. I was like oh I gotta get my
0: helmet, and then I would have died. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like you know sometimes you try to put yourself in this era where we've been so fortunate not to have to go to war. You know, young men now, middle-aged men, and I think about this, and I think, yeah, that would have been me. I would have been in the the foxhole, and the the smoke would have gotten me because I wouldn't have thought about that. Um, but yeah, tell me, you saw All Quiet in the Western Front,
1: the the uh, more recent version, yeah, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, and I've seen parts of it, but uh, go ahead, you saw all of it.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure why it had to be remade. I mean, I say that about a lot of remakes, but <laughs> but it was it was done for TV, but it was shown in theaters overseas in a cut down version. Uh, you can get the full length version, which is about two and a half hours. Um, it is out there. With Richard Thomas, who is, uh, you know, hot from the Waltons, I guess. Um, he was John Boy in the Waltons. Very effective actor, not of the same kind of intensity that Lou Ayers brings to the film, the 1930 version. But um, uh, Louis uh, Lewis Wolheim, who played Cat, the kind of, he's the guy, he's the experienced soldier who knows all the angles, and he basically becomes the protector of all the younger soldiers. Um, in the remake, he's played by Ernest Borgnine, um, and he's terrific. He, he's, he's the, the perfect uh, perfect person to play that role, because, I mean, Louis Wolheim, unfortunately, he died of stomach cancer right after All Quiet on the Western Front came out. So he's only in a handful of early sound films, and he's pretty great in all of them he's Uh, got a great nose yeah exactly he's just got this bulldog kind of face um and uh, you know he's played he plays gangsters and all kinds of stuff in his in his in his parts and then sadly he he died way too early into his career um Borgnine gets the part in the remake uh, mainly because Delbert Mann who directed it also directed him uh you know 20 years before in the film Marty which was an Oscar winner I think and I think Borgnine got an Oscar for that too um yeah, I based know the, the film did. I can't remember if he did. I think he might have. Um, based on the Paddy Chayefsky teleplay. Um, but anyway, so they had a connection there, obviously. Uh, but but he's also perfect for the role. And, it you know, it follows most of the same story points. Um, it's uh, It was shot in Czechoslovakia, which is interesting. It's one of the first sort of American productions to shoot behind the Iron Curtain as it were um, but it's very you know but they make effective use of locations some areas probably were still bombed out from the war at that, from the Second World War at that point so they could use that to portray the First World War uh, and uh, it, it, but it doesn't have that kind of searing impact of, of the original for whatever reason it, it's the battle scenes are, are filmed in a more languid kind of 70s way and and um, the acting is much more subdued I mean it is much more naturalistic but somehow I don't know if that necessarily suits the material especially given that it was set in a past time. I, f- I find that the, the acting style of 1930 kind of suits the material to a certain degree. Um, and, and maybe somebody with a bit more uh, screen presence than Richard Thomas might have helped uh, help serve the material better. But if you've, if you've seen the original, it, it is worth it to see it, just to make the comparison. And there's some great stuff in it. Also, uh, Ian Holm, Who's one of my favorite you know, British character actors? He plays uh, the 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 corporal uh, who trains them, Himmelstoss, who's uh-huh. like formerly the postman that they all used to make fun of and tease, and then he becomes a, the guy in charge of training them. But he's a little, he takes it. Too far in the other direction. He's very strict and very uh, authoritarian, and uh, they get to have some revenge on him uh, for his uh, for being such a strident hard ass on the uh, on the parade square. And uh, Donald Pleasance as the uh, teacher as well. It was nice to see him. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's a short role, but uh, but an important one. And Pleasance is great as always. And you know, like I say, authentic looking locations and so on. Um, and uh, you know, and and Borgnine is very very engaging as as the the sergeant know it all who um, kind of keeps the boys in line and gets them wise to the ways of the war, as it were. But uh, yeah, it's certainly, uh, certainly not a remake that surpasses its original material. So
0: moving closer to the present day, uh, there are a number of films that have dealt with issues around the First World War, and uh, a couple of them are very much still interested in the The air aces and I certainly can understand. Actually, I read about one that I haven't seen, which is uh, otherwise known as the Red Baron or Von Richthofen. That's a, a Roger Corman picture. Have you seen that? I saw it
1: years ago, and uh, Von Richthofen and Von Richthofen and Brown. Yeah, and from what I gather, uh, Corman really wanted to be as historically accurate as he could. I mean, obviously, he, it's Roger Corman; He's working yes. on a budget, but I think it was a, a subject that was near and dear to his heart, and uh, and he wanted at least to you know capture these characters and and be as true to the facts of their lives as as he could um, on his lower budget as he could um it's and it's out there i i think you can get copies of it but yeah i've not seen it in a long no time. i wasn't
0: able to find it but what is available is the blue max from 1966 this is a uh, george Papard is a german pilot and uh steven you've seen it uh uh maybe you want to talk a little bit about it also coming in 1976 10 years later was aces high which is another uh, film set at the aerodrome but this one was a uh Uh, based on the 1928 play Journey's End, which was transferred from the trenches to the sky, starring Malcolm McDowell, Christopher Plummer, and Simon Ward. Um, Now, this is one I have seen, and, uh, you know, I didn't find it, too compelling but i i did again enjoy they they really seem to put all the money into the aeronautical sequences and maybe less into the the scripts but but uh what what did you think well, uh,
1: yeah that's certainly the case of the blue max uh directed by john gillerman who's kind of a journeyman director who m- made a lot of sort of kind of uh well liked at the box office kind of films the things that aren't so well remembered for being terribly groundbreaking or or um you know um you know, or artistic triumphs, or what have you. He did make a film called *The Light Horseman, I think, which was a uh, might be his best film about um, sort of Australian cavalry officers uh, or cavalry troop uh, during around this this time period. But *The Blue Max* was a much splashier, bigger budgeted uh, 20th Century Fox Cinema Scope production um, starring George Pappard. And now uh, *The Blue Max*, I I thought that meant that was the name of the pilot, but in fact, it's actually the name the of metal. the medal that yeah. they get. It's the, the highest honor for uh, for a um, a flying officer in the German Air Corps. I, I think it's, uh, you down 20 enemy planes, I think, and, and, and you get this, uh, this medal. Of course, he's just obsessed with getting that medal. And he's, um, you know, he's, he's, um, you know, in competition with another more, um, experienced pilot, um, in, in both, uh, you know, in the world of romance as well as in the skies, of course. And, um, the, uh yeah George papaard it's I, I like George papaard but here he's he's fairly cold-blooded he's he's kind of a blank slate uh, you don't really feel much for him one way or the other uh he's he's essentially like a cold-blooded killer of the air there's a sequence where he waves down a British sopwith camel um so that or uh, I can't remember exactly if that's what the plane was but he, he waves down a, a British plane and they land and then he guns them down while they're on the ground just so that there'd be a witness (laughs) to it because he was denied a kill earlier in the film and he you know he proves how ruthless he is in getting to that uh, that his tally
0: there's a scene like a little bit like that in aces high where Malcolm mcdowell plays dead and then when the german plane lands he takes off loops around and shoots them while they're still on the ground
1: yeah Yeah, i yeah it's a little close for comfort i think especially because that was just like 10 years later um it seemed kind of blatant but uh it's it's a splashy looking affair. James Mason plays the commanding officer for the Air Corps, and and he's great. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I saw it years ago on on letter uh, on Laserdisc, and it was it was it was interesting to revisit it and and see how kind of flat it is dramatically it it like i say it's got a great cast of those familiar british and and german faces that uh kind of really define it as a mid-60s movie and there there are some great aerial sequences there's a scene where they're flying under bridges and stuff like that and you know some fairly impressive uh flying work uh but that that really is the be-all and end-all of the film i don't find dramatically it's it's all that stunning and Aces High, um, yeah, it, it's a weird choice to take Journey's End, which has been remade a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. I think, I think as
0: recently as 2017, Yeah, was a British the, version. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, the original version, I think, is like 1930. It's, it's, it's a famous play. Uh, it was the actual, the first version of it, Journey's End from 1930, uh, directed by James Whale, uh, who had directed it on the stage. And that was his entry into films before he directed things like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and Showboat. And, uh, you know really fine director um who had experience you know his own experiences in the first world war that i think he brought to bear on that story but um i, I don't know that that needed to be remade as a as a film about pilots because a lot of it was about the pressures of being in the trenches not so much the pressures of being up in the air uh Colin Clive who played Dr Frankenstein uh plays the officer who cracks under pressure and also star it was also the first role for David Manners who was born in Halifax and he was like the Keanu Reeves of his day. He was just like a, a really pretty young man who wound up getting a lot of plum romantic parts in some really important movies, and yet is generally not remembered. But he's in, he's in, uh, he's in Dracula. He plays the part that Keanu Reeves plays in Coppola's Dracula, weirdly enough. And he's in the Mummy, directed by James Whale. No, no, Whale didn't direct that, did he? That Carl Strokes. I think anyway, we're getting off topic. We are here, getting dude. off topic. But anyway, <laughs> I, I just went down a little rabbit hole in my mind there. But um, anyway, shout out to David Manners, born on Tower Road in Halifax. I think
0: I think uh, there's actually a plaque somewhere on Tower Road that says that he was. Oh, there should he be. Was, he was born there. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but, but anyway,
1: yeah. it, Ace is high. I mean, it, it benefits. Uh, at least it's got Malcolm McDowell in it, uh, who does kind of light up the screen. It always does. Yeah. It's hard not to like a Malcolm McDowell performance, or at least, you know feel some energy coming off the screen, which, you know, doesn't happen with George Pappard and doesn't happen with Richard Thomas. You know, somehow the sixties and seventies was not a great time for captivating first world war films in a lot of ways. Um, But and, then we got but Gallipoli. But then we get Gallipoli. And yeah. that it's like, <laughs> nice
0: segue, Stephen. There we go. Um, yeah, Gallipoli I, was pretty remarkable. I'm, I'm a big fan of Peter Weir. I'm, I'm of the opinion that he's never made a bad movie. Uh, even his lesser movies are still very, very much worth seeing. And this is not one of his lesser pictures. Uh, he has such a distinct authorial voice. And uh, this is about a group of young men, boys really, from Western Australia, joined up to fight the First World War. At Gallipoli in Turkey, the campaign that went on for a year and killed hundreds of thousands of soldiers on both sides and helped kind of define nationhood for Australia. I think in a way afterwards, you know, they thought, well, maybe we need to think twice about always supporting the Brits in all of their campaigns. Mm -hmm. Um, But it starts in Australia with Mark Lee who plays Archie, and Mel Gibson, young Mel Gibson, who plays Frank, both of whom are sprinters. And at 18, Archie is too young to sign up, but desperately wants to. While Frank is opposed to the war, Archie is turned down at first when he tries, tries a fast, you know, sign up. But he heads across the country to Perth to sign up where people don't know his age. And Frank's got some buddies who are signing up and eventually is convinced to do it. So this is a gorgeous-looking picture. It's sort of in three parts. There's the Australia rural lifestyle travel part, and then there's the training in Cairo, which is maybe my favorite segment of the film. And then there's the fighting in Gallipoli. The costumes, the cinematography, Weir's confidence in his storytelling. You know, I know some people are not a fan of Mel Gibson, and for good reason, but uh, as a young, young actor, it's hard to deny his charisma he was really you know, you, you can't take your eyes off him. Um, you know, and, and his character, as someone says about his character, he'd sell his grandmother for a tuppence and still talk his way into heaven. He's, <laughs> he's got a great character in this. Anyway, um I think I think that I like the scenes in Cairo, especially because you get a sense of how the Aussies had no respect for the Brits, who they were ostensibly fighting for. And um you know, you get a real sense of how the spirit of the men and how that particular masculine brotherhood encouraged everyone to go. And then how the sacrifice was so brutal and the pointlessness of it all. So, um, yeah, it was really wonderful to see it again. Uh, though strangely, I don't know if you noticed it, but the synth the synth <laughs> score yes. by Brian May, not the Queen guitarist, but a, a composer from Australia, is a little uh, odd. In a movie like this, there are there are like tra- more traditional sort of symphonic scores here, orchestral score late in the running. But there is there is a there is this synth uh, score, which seems very 80s in in the choice of it. So I, I wondered a little bit about that. Uh, also interesting about this film it was produced by music impresario Robert Stigwood and Rupert Murdoch both had a hand in making this film.
1: Now, I thought that some of the synth music was like tangerine dream or something like that. Maybe I've got that wrong, but there there's there certainly sounds like it. There's stuff in there that I'd heard before. like I hadn't watched this movie in a long time, and I, there's there were music cues that I recognized from elsewhere and uh now, i I will uh, admit I am currently on i m d b <laughs> trying to confirm this <laughs> but I don't see this the soundtrack uh um listing here on their page so i i'm I'm gonna back off from that but it, it there, there was. Uh, that's what I felt like I was hearing. Um, okay, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. Uh, no, Jean-Michel Jarre. That's. Oh, you're right. Jar. Jar. Is it Jar or Jarre? Uh, maybe it is Jar. <laughs> anyway, yes, they yes. they use Oxygen by Jean-Michel Jarre or Jar. How you pronounce it? Um, which which I played a lot in junior high school. So that's that's music that I had either not listened to since the last time I watched Gallipoli or or since grade seven. But uh, but it, you know, as soon as I heard it, I recognized it. You know, at least it's. The era that I experienced sure. it in I, well chariots of fire with that was that year too, and with yeah, Vangelis.
0: Vangelis, so it was the era yeah
1: yeah, I'm guessing that was maybe part of the reason why they went it it is an unusual choice, but i I liked it does kind of make it stand out in a way i don't mm-hmm. I, it didn't bother me I, I kind of liked it that it was kind of otherworldly um there's yeah there's a lot to like about Gallipoli um I was surprised to learn that uh the the battle scenes were all shot in southern Australia, they found a like a beachhead um somewhere on South Australian Bight or somewhere down that area that kind of resembled Gallipoli because of course, Gallipoli is a historic site. They couldn't really shoot there. Uh It's all, you know, it's been preserved. You know, there's still trenches there. You can still go and see how, how the, the Australian forces were just mere yards away from the Turks. There was hardly any space between them at all. So, but, but the bombardment and the machine guns, I mean, that was part of the reason why it was so devastating because, you know, they couldn't even get up ahead of speed to charge the trenches by the time they popped up on over there was, they were done for, um, but uh the, yeah the the this film seems to do everything right the characters are vivid we get to know them pretty well before uh they have to go off into battle uh we kind of experience their growth as 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 humans uh you know going from being kind of wild men of the outback into into soldiers and so on and and getting to see the world for the first time um you know in Cairo and then you know before they have to go off to to uh to turkey uh it's um you know I just like the progression i think it's handled really well um you know and the scenes in in egypt i mean they did film in egypt um but then they filmed a lot of it back home, and they just uh the it's kind of seamless like yeah you know the, they actually created a, an Egyptian bazaar in australia <laughs> and uh and then but then they actually did shoot around the pyramids and that kind mm. of thing, so uh, you really—it's—it's it's great movie, uh, you know, movie magic at work in terms of just suspension of disbelief without actually, you know, having to use CGI and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Like it's fairly—it's actually fairly effectively done, and mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, and 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 it's so well researched. I think, uh, it, you know, Peter Weir really went deep into the research. You know, the, it, if you get the DVD, there's a fairly decent, um, it's one of those sort of, they did it like a long form documentary and then cut it up into 10 minute segments Uh because there's some rule about that, uh, for you you can pay people less if you cut it up into short, short featurettes or something like that. But, but the, but they, they go into the production fairly extensively and that's, uh, I learned a lot of stuff about the film. I didn't know thanks to that uh, DVD that you loaned
0: Yeah, it. absolutely, it's uh, terrific. Um, now, before we wrap up our look at films uh, covering the First World War here on Lens Ears, I definitely want to mention a couple of movies that tell the story from more feminine perspective. Yes, uh, and uh, yeah, and that's uh, a very long engagement from 2004, and uh, the Testament of Youth from 2015. Now. I would say A Very Long Engagement was the film I really liked. Uh, It was such a wonder to to rediscover. This is the Jean-Pierre Jeunet film, who's best known for Amelie and Delicatessen. And I remember seeing this film back in the day and thinking, oh, I just, I think I was a little disappointed it wasn't more like (laughs) Amelie. But of course, the subject matter is so much more serious. But in fact, watching it again made me realize it actually has a lot of that whimsy, but it's just from a darker perspective, you know? He's it's the story of a of a young woman left behind by her lover and they're engaged but he dies on the battlefield or does he and she does she goes through this mystery with uh, and hires a private detective and she has a lawyer and she's exploring the lives of the other 5 men who were supposedly who died at the same time and they were all um they were all uh, supposedly uh, had had been um, they were going to be executed because they had tried to kill themselves or mutilate themselves in order to get away from their duty. Uh, anyway, it's a fairly complex tale. One of those times I wish my French was better because what, reading the subtitles come so thick and fast. You sort of miss the gorgeous cinematography, which is amazing to look at. Um, but I really loved watching this again. Uh, it was it was so good to rediscover.
1: Yeah, this is a film that got better uh, the second time I watched it just because I was noticing more of the details in the background and the the level of the art. Design and, and 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 yeah, a lot of those like little jokes and things. The postman always skidding on the gravel, <laughs> yeah, which is very much a very you know Janae kind of touch. But but then uh, but he's delivering like grim news and, and stuff like that. So so it is kind of tempered. And 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 seeing Marion Cotillard as as the Corsican uh, prostitute who's out to avenge the death of her lover um, at the hands of these incompetent officers. And uh you know, the first time I saw it, I didn't know who Marion Cotillard was. Uh-huh. So you know, seeing her. You know, after having watched her in s- so many wonderful performances, it- it's great to see her here and see how terrific she is here. And you know, at one point she says "Je ne regret rien," yeah. <laughs> and I just you know just flash back to p- her playing Edith Piaf. And you said it was like her audition to play yeah. that part. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah, but she, uh, she and of course
0: Audrey Tattoo is also so wonderful in these films. Um, yeah, it makes me want to watch a bunch of Janae films again, so maybe we'll do that in the future. Some yeah, of I his, his definitely movies.
1: watch uh, Delicatessen
0: again, that's for sure. Yeah, and he made a film here in Canada that I'd only just heard about called The Young and Prodigious T.S. Spivet, which was his last feature film in 2013. Wow. Yeah, never even got released here, I don't think, but it stars Callum Keith Rennie and Julian Richings and even Rick Mercer is in it. Oh, jeepers. I need yeah. to find that. I know. I do, too. It's totally on my list. Anyway, before we yeah, got to go. Let's we... talk
1: about Testament of Youth, because yeah, I, I yeah. did watch that <laughs> over the weekend, and uh, I I liked it. It has a bit of that kind of staid historical drama thing going on, where it we, we, we've we seen a lot of films set in this period, and they, they feel a little tight or yes, <laughs> something. Yes. The, 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 they're, they're, they don't always convey...
0: I think real life. Uh there's a bit of know. Vaseline on the lens, you know. I noticed that a lot of the the, the the light is glowy. It's got that kind of glowy quality, like it was shot through a doily. <laughs> and I, I find that a bit irritating and I'm with you there. But I think that uh that this story, uh, based on a on a memoir, um, and it's about a young woman who want really wants to go to Oxford, uh played by Alicia Vikander. Um and meanwhile her she meets a young man who winds up going to war and so she's she's missing him at war. And it's really from her perspective rather than the boy's perspective, which I really liked about the film. And, you know, there's some really nice supporting roles from Miranda Richardson and Haley Atwell and, uh, uh, Dominic West. Um, you know, so there are things to recommend a Taron Egerton is in it and Kit Harrington from, you know, game of Thrones fans will recognize. So, um, these are all good reasons to see it.
1: Well, uh, uh yeah, let's see if is terrific as Vera Britton. Um, you know, and she's the reason to see this film. Uh, she was, I guess, she wasn't originally supposed to play the role. She kind of came in at the last minute. Because okay, I think uh, I'm trying to remember who was originally cast in the role. But uh, oh, it was Saoirse Ronan was uh-huh. supposed to play Vera, and then there, but then f- production got delayed, and she got had to go off and do something else. Um, but Alicia Vikander is terrific. Um, you know, she certainly conveys the intelligence of, of of Vera Britton, who was a real person who, who wrote. Uh, a book about her experience of of the war, of losing so many people that she loved, and and writing this, um, you know, this best selling book about her her time during the war, and it was also a very, you know, a very strong anti war uh, book as well, adding to the the you know the bibliography of of authors like remarque who wrote all quiet on the western front and so on um you know hers was a very important book on on a similar level there actually was a tv version of it done in i think in either the 70s or the early 80s which, okay which i'd be curious to go back with like a bbc or channel 4 production i forget which but um you know i'd like to go see that version i, I imagine this one obviously probably has a bigger budget and is more more cinematic and, and a cast like like dominic west and emily watson play sure. her parents for example yeah. it's it's very well cast I I I felt that it I don't know if it needed to have more of the kind of feel of real life about it or something. I don't know what it is about some of these uh, historical recreations. It that, was the doilies. It was yeah, the I doilies. Guess, I, guess, <laughs> I guess it's just the, the doilies, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to Lends Me Your Ears. We have come to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to our chat about movies about the First World War. Uh, The one one we didn't get to in time, we ran out of time, was Passchendaele, the Canadian... Uh, twenty million dollar picture from Paul Gross. I, I don't know. I I was I wasn't really a fan. I'm sorry to say.
1: Yeah, it had some good stuff in it. Uh, but its its qualities are varied. <laughs> Let's be. Um, there's some story contrivances that are a little hard to take. And uh, and yeah. A, I was hoping for a lot better from that film. I feel like the definitive Canadian first world, because Canada's contribution to the war effort was fairly substantial. And the losses felt, especially in Newfoundland, the losses felt by, although Newfoundland wasn't part of Canada at that point. But uh, the losses felt across this country were were pretty severe. And uh, I feel like there's still a film to be made. I would love to see a film about the Dumbbells, who are the Canadian entertainment troupe. That formed in the trenches and went on to become a hit on Broadway in London's West End. Uh, I saw a play about them in the 70s when I was a kid, and I th- still think there's a great story there to be told. But who knows if it'll it'll ever happen? But uh, surely there are some other stories from this country that could be told from this uh, this time period. I don't know. I absolutely agree. All
0: right, then we'll send you off. Uh, On your way, thank you again for listening. Uh, Lens Me Your Ears is reachable on Facebook and on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears. I'm on Twitter at Flaw on the Iris. That's the name of my film blog. And, Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. Yes, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. We also have a Patreon account if you'd like support what we do here on Lens Me Your Ears. Thanks so much to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 530 Thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network as well for all that you do. Uh, Hope to see you again sometime and see you at the movies. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.